Nadia Sullenberg presents Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Sullenberg. Comedy Snow Globe. Loaded, ripped, jumbled, genius, and gone with a generation. Such was the stuff of comedy legend in early 1970s Chicago, on the 10th and 11th floors of the historic Madison Lungry Building. Here, across from the Mart, overlooking the Chicago River's striking main stem, once stood the hallowed stage and offices of print and television humor icon, American Fancy. Celebrated for its tasteless perversion and disdain for authority, the satirical magazine turned after-hours sketch comedy cable show and eventual movie production house provided its readership with a beloved moral low ground of debauchery and social disregard, packed cover to cover with nudity, explicit language, and political hostility so cherished by late 60s adolescent males and what TV Times journalist Claudette Beale called a hormonal chowder of negotiable heterosexual fantasies and homosexual expectancies. At its best, American Fancy offered a stylishly straight and edgy portrait of society and culture through commercial parody, contemptuous prose, arrogant analysis, and artwork that, in its fine print, sparkled with incomparable repartee. Compiled monthly by a gifted group of young and unabashed contributors, American Fancy flew off newsstands, and in October 1973, it was developed into a late-night variety show for KBV Chicago called Friday Night Fancy, Cable's alternative comedy forerunner. A show that delivered the same artistry and offensive flair fans came to love and expect from the counterculture brand, while at the same time providing its own unique somewhat more commercially accessible take on contemporary civilization until its cancellation in 2003. But in the mid-1970s, inside this lauded factory of laughs, down the hall from the equally rowdy dressing rooms, no workspace was more sacred than that of the writer's room. A 12 by 16 command of excellence, a spitting snowstorm of provocative brilliance that rode the dark and racy sensibilities of teenage pubescents and later late fringe audiences alike, while continuing to spur the creative juices of burgeoning humorists and comedic talents for decades to come. And the secret sauce? Copious amounts of cocaine and alcohol. A scene where checks were cashed in white, if cashed at all. An absolute all-out flurry of narcotic-laced inspiration presented in a collaboration of sketches, not skits, strewn out and piled high in a melee of ash-covered heaps adorned with topless models, a scent of upchuck, the occasional revolver, and a month-long live-in goat named Dick, who gobbled up whatever was put in front of him the troops' brief, albeit effective, four-legged system for picking sketches. 
And at the helm, seated at the table's heads, were American fancy creators Norman Mathis and Chase Clawson. Surrounded by their snazzy, quick-on-the-draw band of now mythical writers and peerless players, responsible for filling the weekly 90-minute-long Friday Night Fancy, for a brief trip back in time, were as follows. Left to right. Situated with his back to the corner of the room, agitated and anxious among indecisive, with ticks aplenty and a master's in fidgeting, is the scrawny and spastic, alas balding, Bud Huxley. A genius with wordplay, all but undone by his more sick-than-body mind, made famous in the early sketch of sportscaster Tex Buckman calling the Sister Regina honorary porridge wrestling finals in beautiful Peoria, Huxley is the room's most measured of users, limiting his doses to a quarter bump taken with his morning coffee in lieu of sugar. Or sometimes in addition, if he's behind on a deadline and looking for some much-needed zip. Sugared, one way or another, rest assured he's wired with jittery get-up-and-go that will last well past Sunday. Affectionately referred to on the floor as the Jewish Anarchist, a handle conceived in the back booth of the relatively ceremonial and fiercely competitive setting of Deidre's Bar across the street from the studio, the after-hours roundtable of last-call social sermonizing and half-baked conceptualizing later beefed up for its inclusion in that week's show, Bud arrived onto the scene as an angry, sexually demented little man with a rapier wit, which he rears on a razor's edge of sordid humor and vulgar depravity. Born Huxley Aaron Kennexwald to a devout Jewish household in Brooklyn, the off-color comedy writer was raised on casually strict orthodox values, not to mention the fleshy cabaret magazines of the 1950s. Ingeniously hidden within the pages of Boy's Hobby at Gus Perlman's Barbershop, and by that same token, a wish-book-bought pair of Sergeant Seal binoculars stashed away on the rooftop across from Miss Petrie's preparatory school for young ladies. Together with his unscrupulous knack for wicked debasement, Bud, Huxley's Christian showbiz name, which he picked up in the showers of the New York Racket Club, along with a neat trick involving his thumb, is characterized for his hallmark of disorderly convention and religious flouting, implemented most iconically in American Fancy's September 1972 issue with Huxley's Holocaust Hummels, done in the style of a mail-order cutout and later recontextualized into a television ad spot for the legendary Friday Night Fancy Season 1 sketch, featuring writer Calvin Ruckus and middle player Penelope Barnett, the show's squeaky-voiced string-bean comedian as the satisfied customer. Huxley shock humor at its finest. At the table, Bud animates a flipbook doodle in the bottom corner of a scrapped script from last week, depicting a young boy sticking himself inside an apple and chasing a startled worm out the other end. 
He slides it over to the captivating, characterist, and voice virtuoso, Marion Wheeler, who, being pulled away from her page-long block of one-sided phone dialogue, styling a soft-spoken grandmother inquiring about a membership to the Scullions of Satan Motorcycle Club, giggles at the thumb scene with childish delight, before providing the worm a speech bubble in its final frame. Eek, a stiff! A weekly tour de force of transformative monologues portraying everyday personalities from inflated urbanites to unremarkable suburbanites, even a wood-hungry termite singing several spirited bars of Tunnel of Love inside a rotten Southside nightclub, Marion stays, quote, freshened up, unquote, throughout the day thanks to a compact of powder, complete with matching pewter spoon and magnifying mirror for nasal primping, and remains ready for reapplication just as soon as her face regains feeling. Recognized for her earmark of bleach blonde curls and china-like complexion, emphasized and pushed so memorably in the season two mortuary sketch where she plays a deceased 1950s homemaker who, at her funeral, keeps trying to get out of the casket to finish mending her husband's socks and put dinner on the table. A sketch inspired by Marion's anecdotal cocaine face plant following a studio drop-in from jumpsuit soft rocker and lead triplet Donnie Haynes of the Haynes Brothers Trio, this mistakenly mousy marvel of beat-based stylings made her American Fancy debut on the premiere of Friday Night Fancy in 1973 with an originally planned one-off guest segment. A Midwest native, Wheeler was discovered locally inside Chicago's circus and carnival-themed black box improv show, Big Tops, after FNF executive producer and head writer Norman Mathis, in the midst of a three-day mushroom binge, caught Marion's mustache portraiture of a lively carny barking outside the tent of the Incredible Steve, the audience-suggested one-headed tax auditor from Spokane. A trailblazer in Cupidol modernization and the cultural centerfold for 1970s anorexia, Marion Wheeler can be spotted most weekday evenings tripping the light fantastic at Mickey Donaldson's Club Guru in the fashionable wholesale flower market district. Or on occasion, behind the mic at one of Hyde Park's many psychedelic cereal bars, trying out any number of her personas. Like her death row makeup artist, yammering away to an inmate before their execution. Or her sweet knuckle-headed butcher character, mustering the courage to ask out a timid, four-eyed customer through a veiled education on hind and four-quarter beef cuts. Shimmering slices of spiced life, she describes them, delivered with heart and a dash of dysfunctional absurdity. Marion wields a subtle, singular brilliance that remained unrivaled until the 1993 Friday Night Fancy induction of Chicago-born monologist and Wheeler worshiper Libby Keats, whose tragic 1997 overdose, although assisted by a vintage loose powder box of nose candy bought at a Marion Wheeler estate auction, was an exit pattern perfect to her idol until it was labeled mere complications of the heart by Network PR following the month-earlier murder-suicide of featured performer Dan Gilman. (laughs) 
Next to Marion, offering her his monogrammed hanky to preen her thin, hook-like smeller, with half-rim reading glasses and a breasted pocket watch poised in the pressed refinement of a tailored suit vest, sits the sophisticated pervert, Troy Donovan. A distinguished American fancy essayist since issue one, Troy made a name for himself with such published pieces as Troy Donovan's Guide to Erotic Edible Arrangements, The Scout's A to Z on Sodomy, and the scornfully irreverent The Gentleman's Funeral Companion to the Widow Rendezvous. Drawing inspiration courtesy of sensible yet steady doses taken from a small antique brass brandy bottle hanging around his neck, Donovan's class of sordid, double entendre-soaked writing translated sterlingly to television with indelible classics, including the Puritan Wife Traveling Appraisal Tour and the Cunnilingus ABCs, sung by the American Fancy Felt Puppet Band. Acknowledged by mainstream moviegoers for his later holiday family films of the 1980s and 1990s, namely Home for the Fourth and the beloved Labor Days series, featuring the O'Callaghan family and their nine-year-old intellectual terror, Christopher, Donovan's early delves into childhood psychology and sexual development paved the way for his risque, nonetheless educational artistry. And with an added cure-all as rejuvenating as around-the-clock Big C, expressed by the occasional outburst of Oh Mama, that considerable Donovan craft comes off exclusively Freudian. A mostly genteel creative, Troy's presence in the writer's room was once affectionately equated to a porcelain cup and saucer with pubic hair by his peer Betsy Reed inside the highly acclaimed self-referential American fancy reunion issue, where the staff was fashioned with old age makeup and photographed during a fictional reunion at a swanky Chicago banquet hall. With his signature prem demeanor, he pitches the table a gag about a military school classroom of cadets, passionately professing their patriotism to an attractive female substitute instructor through a series of increasingly misguided homosexual displays called honorable discharge. He's met with uproarious approval by one of the table's helmsmen, American Fancy co-founder and office wildcard, especially when pertaining to productivity, Chase Clawson, who asked if the Academy could be on Mars. The freewheeling, free-spirited lout with an impressive IQ that's just begging for unruly insubordination, as well as the occasional bare buttocks pressed up against glass, Clawson is the company's proverbial snowblower and literal nose vacuum, whose stash submitted to accounting under the miscellaneous item cotton candy mix, or extracurricular cheer, is staged before him like a sculpted snow castle, surrounded by a moat of rum and a paperboat regatta of discarded mediocrity. Born Chauncey and Dora Clawson, Chase, following a boyhood stint as Chance, met American Fancy partner and brainy better half Norman Mathis in the stuffy, gladiatorial halls of the Newark School for Boys. More accurately, while waiting in the reception of the Institute's administrative office, after Clawson was caught organizing a faculty key party 
and Mathis was found inserting smutty cooking recipes into the library's card catalog. After the inarguably successful third season of Friday Night Fancy, which saw major guest stars Ronnie Chester, songwriter Eric Ivory, and thespian Helen Kurtz, Clawson purchased 10 acres of farmland an hour outside of Chicago, where he bought a haul of livestock, including Dick the Goat, and constructed a purpose-built skeet shooting range for flinging rival comedy records into his crosshairs. But mostly, every traceable print of Clawson's own detested Grammy Award-winning album, American Footlong. Featuring themes of consumerism and excess, politics, and above all, food, some of its tracks include a play-by-play commentary of a gubernatorial egg-eating contest, a parodied cafeteria rendition of Vern Jacobs' strung-out 1971 single, Methadone Mondays, entitled Meatloaf Mondays, and a comedy sketch depicting a religious radio talk show with a sexually cavalier host, hell-bent on disclosing all the indecent and uncensored details of a carnal evening witnessing to a waterfront streetwalker before he's dragged from his broadcast booth kicking and screaming. Clawson met his 16-year-old bride, Eloise Hatcher, in 1975 at a studio Christmas party while coming up from a holiday rail taken off the lap of a topless Santa, who was hired from the stacked classified ads inside American Fancy. Following their divorce two months later, Clawson, inclined to newly adopted bouts of armed psychosis, picked up his rural stakes and moved onto the beige horsehair sofa on that back wall, where he wittingly takes to marking his scripts by virtue of a bathrobe that remains continually ajar. Seated on the other side of Clawson is his lifelong friend, American fancy pretty boy and swaggering charmer, the face, impressionist Calvin Ruckus. At 6'4 and 3 quarters, Cal, as christened by friends and colleagues following a week-long series of stolen tete-a-tetes with his fellow cast members in the soundstage shadows, I like to be called Cal, got his start with the humor dynamo as a model for the magazine. There were the full-page ads for Flacio Bendy Straws, the Marxist Exploding Cigar, and the famous Tropical Vacation Travel Spread, featuring Calvin's prideful mug and pearly whites chomping down on a cocktail umbrella while flanked by a pair of women's thighs. A bit ruckus expanded on during an appearance on the Gene Crawford show when he tacked on the inferred anecdote about once dating a Long Beach lifeguard and always getting sand in his mouth. The self-appointed, self-assured, American fancy, hot dog, ham, and all-around attention hog like his hoovering chum and table neighbor, where the two share an adjoining property line of ounces turned to grams, Ruckus is a media opportunist with sarcastic proficiency in ridiculing his professional rivals by proximity, particularly on a personal level. Donovan's stocky disposition, Huxley's need for a cranial sandblasting, or Wheeler's skeleton that appears to be outgrowing her. And although these envious, downright mean public jabs appear to the general as playful jeering, he remains impervious to criticism, thanks to that show-stopping charisma. 
And it's this straight, unflinching, calculated veneer that aids in making Ruckus's impersonation so spot on. Rick Mayer's aloof facial reactions, T. Thornton Little's jerky gesturing, or the exaggerated clumsiness of Roger Salomon, particularly his infamous Senate floor sheet cake topple. Along with Clausen, Ruckus is considered the gang's heaviest of users, and together the pair spends most afternoons walking the loop and riffing, betting on how many pearls they can snort in the time it takes the Clark Street Bridge to go up and down. breaks away from a spirited giggle fest with Chase to offer the featured neighbor on his left, the boldly assertive, emasculating ball breaker, Betsy Reed, a complimentary snow squall of Colombian purity. Wearing oversized yellow-tinted butterfly sunglasses, smacking her gum and putting out a cigarette, Betsy takes her middle finger presses it firmly to the table and draws out a disco ball in the powder before rubbing it along her gum line. The confessed pants wearer in the company, Reed's crass conviction, coupled with her deep, commanding voice and guttural smoker's laugh, provides the room with a harmonious, hard-hitting edge, a progressively permissive, man-eater perspective. An unblushing vantage demonstrated in the season four Friday Night Fancy sketch, which captures a fictional suffrage leader speaking at a 1920s women's rally. Here, Reed's character calls for the offshore imprisonment of all males before an on-location remote, depicting an old-timey styled newsreel inside a men's restroom, shows the vehement advocate taking a sledgehammer to a standing urinal while flooded with flashbulbs. Similarly, her commentary on equality, externalized in her non-monogamous, oyster-laden lifestyle, is highlighted in a hilarious parody of the 1950s sci-fi TV show The In-Between. It follows three male astronauts who crash land on a planet inhabited by scandally-clad women, who use not-so-veiled puns to cover the fact that they ate all the men. Bewitched by their beauty, the spacemen willingly base themselves with a five-spice sunscreen and slide into a cast-iron hot tub waiting for the girls. We sure don't get this kind of treatment on Earth, I'll say. Another favorite in Reed's cocksure canon is the classic Nadir's Femme Fatales for Hire sketches, structured as television commercials. They detail a service directed at wives looking to ensnare their husbands and claim infidelity in family court before running off with Brock, your new lover. Offering complete discretion at unmatched rates, one of the ads deals out a montage of testimonials, including a paid former target, played with tongue-in-cheek dryness by Calvin Ruckus. I got hosed for half my savings and was forced to pay a lien on a house I bought, Calvin's character says with a smile. And I'll never see my children again, thanks to Nadir's femme fatales for hire. With a hearty swill from her silver, oval-shaped, and dimpled flask, Reed passes a note card of punched-up dialogue to the diligent academic of the bunch. American Fancy co-creator and resident insomniac Norman Mathis, 
who's hammering away on the faded keys of an old Zetzer typewriter solely with his index fingers. A shrewd and inscrutable sort, Mathis makes it a point to distance himself from the other members of the troupe, leaving his partner and favorite vocal machine gun, Chase Clawson, to play in the sandbox with the others. He stated in a Friday Night Fancy Season 1 Tellview feature. As FNF head writer and the show's executive producer, Mathis's fun splits between negotiating with network censors, displacing pressure and personal requests from higher-ups, and serving as ringleader to the continual circus that is the Friday Night Fancy production. Ergo, with a taxing haul week in and week out, the whip-smart walking encyclopedia behind such notable bits as the Being Canadian Handbook and the Schubertson Scholastic Bowl, Team Tenpen, reaches for an invigorating alternative to Huxley's Coffee with Sugar. Mathis's choice? Tea with Sugar. A connoisseur of the leaf, including tobacco, snuff specifically, kept in a pouch of fine leather, Mathis consumes up to 20 cups a day, each sweetened to some degree or another. It's a head-down, nose-to-the-grindstone attack so exacting, it's called for the replacement of his Zetzer's feed roller on several occasions, as well as six new space bars and seven-letter E keys. And once his letter M, after Chase pried it out with a plastic hand juicer following a Valentine's friendship spat. Mathis's methodical, almost fatherly approach balances perfectly the table's fully loaded, let-fly stream-of-consciousness philosophy fostered so fervently by Clausen, who thereby is awarded the characterization of, as identified by Betsy Reed, the group's fun uncle, good for getting drugs, ignoring sexual boundaries, and bailing you out of jail if he's not there sitting next to you. Pecking at the keys of his Zetzer, Norman glances up at the clock on the wall, pulls the script page from the roller, and hands it to Bud, circling a section with a pen kept behind his ear. He refeeds a half-typed page into the typewriter and fills the room once again with a tedious rat-a-tat. Huxley cracks his knuckles with a wiggle of his fingers and stirs some cheer into his coffee. He offers a pour from the pot to Mathis, who waves it off and produces a small wooden box of oolong. Reading over his work, diverted, Mathis snorts a pinch of the loose tea, triggering from him an animated huff of swear-heavy coughing, sending the rest of the table into hysterics. of Thaddeus Ellenberg's Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg. With an introduction by Nicole Kalasich. And artwork by Adrian Lobel. This series is independently produced by Thaddeus Ellenberg. Thaddeus Ellenberg.